You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Calls to abolish billionaires are a moral travesty by Keith Lockage. Welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth, coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute. I usually say in uh, sunny Southern California, but today it's all clouds and rain. But anyway, so this is our weekly web series exploring life's big questions and the answers to those questions coming from the ideas of Ayn Rand. I'm Keith Lockage, and I'm your host this week. And Today, we're going to stray from our usual format of asking a big question. Instead, I'm going to take up an issue in the culture that has a huge amount of moral significance, and I'm going to take a stand on that issue right from the outset. So the issue that's come up in the culture is the question of whether the very existence of billionaires represents some sort of moral failure of our society. So this is a viewpoint that's come out in the last year or so among left-leaning intellectuals and politicians. Nobody can honestly deserve a billion dollars, they claim. So there must be something morally wrong with a society in which some people are billionaires. And this has led to the idea that we need to abolish billionaires. That was the title of this New York Times opinion piece a a while ago. And and this has become almost a campaign slogan among Democratic politicians. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have both proposed radical new taxes on wealth. So not not on income, but on the actual assets that people hold. And Sanders has said explicitly, I don't think billionaires should exist. Now, the reason I don't want to frame this as a as a big question in, in, in our usual format for this web series, is that I think the very question itself is a moral outrage. This whole abolish billionaires perspective is so morally corrupt that it doesn't even deserve to be a question. What I'm gonna argue today is that it's the proposals to abolish billionaires that are the moral outrage. So that's the title of my presentation today, calls to abolish billionaires are the moral travesty. So let's start to unpack this, this abolish billionaires perspective. And let's start with the, you know, the kind of most basic question we have here, which is how is it that somebody can actually earn a billion dollars? You know, one of Bernie Sanders' former uh, advisors once tweeted, no one makes a billion dollars, you take a billion dollars. And this, this kind of attitude is a, is a major premise underlying this whole anti-billionaire campaign, the idea that nobody can possibly deserve a billion dollars. So let's start with that. And I wanna start with a really clear example of how someone can in fact earn a billion dollars. So this is an example that Yaron Brook uses all the time. He's the chairman of the Ayn Rand Institute's board of directors, and he's the host of the Yaron Brook show, and he gives talks on capitalism and so on all the time. And he often uses the example of of J.K. Rowling and the whole Harry Potter phenomenon. And and this is a great example because it's just so darn straightforward. You know, here you have J.K. Rowling who started with nothing. She's a single mother, struggling, barely able to make ends meet. She has an idea for a great story, but it's a struggle, a huge struggle to get it written and published. Apparently the Harry Potter books, the first Harry Potter book was rejected by more than 12 publishers before it was finally accepted. Now, this is not easy, but she perseveres, the book is published, and it becomes a huge sensation. People flock to bookstores by the millions and gladly hand over 20 to $30 to buy the hardcovers as soon as they come out. I mean, I remember when the books were being published and masses of people stood in line for hours to be the first to get the latest book in the series. More than 500 million copies of the Harry Potter books have been sold, you know, and then you have the movies and the merchandise and the theme parks, you know, she spawned a whole industry here. So you ask, you know, how can someone make a billion dollars? Well, the way JK Rowling did it 
is by creating a product that's so valuable to people that millions and millions of them are willing to pay her for it voluntarily. Who did she take her money from? You know, the idea that you don't make a billion dollars, you take a billion dollars is complete BS. Personally, I've spent hundreds of dollars on Harry Potter stuff, you know, that for, for myself and for my family. You know, I've got the books, uh, I've got the movie set, you know, I've got Halloween costumes for my kids, we've got the theme park passes, the Lego, you know, we've got t-shirts, games, all that stuff, you name it, right? Nobody forced me to give all that money to JK Rowling. I and millions of other people paid for all those things voluntarily because they're worth more to me than the money they cost. The value of the enjoyment that Harry Potter and all the stuff that goes along with it has brought to me and to my family is worth way more than the few hundreds of dollars that I've spent on all that stuff. And this is the, this is the really important point. J.K. Rowling has brought way more value into the world and into people's lives than the few billions of dollars that she's made from Harry Potter. The billionaire haters want us to think that somehow the world would be a better place if there were no billionaires. But this is completely the opposite of the truth. The fact is that the world has been made a better place by the creative effort of people like J.K. Rowling. In her case, it's been made richer and more valuable by the fictional universe that she created. She's made all of our lives better by creating these stories and these characters and all these products. And she's brought way more value into the world and into people's lives than the few billions of dollars she's made from Harry Potter. I mean, the money that she's earned is actually a pretty small payment given how much value she's created. So the point is, People earn money, the way that people earn money and the way they deserve what they earn <clears throat> is by trading with other voluntary participants on a free market. And the only way to earn a billion dollars in that way is to produce values that improve human life on a massive scale or for masses of people. Again, the Harry Potter books have sold, you know, 500 million copies. So this is a really important point. So I wanna say this again. The only way to earn a billion dollars through voluntary trade on a free market is by producing values that improve human life on a massive scale and that earn the voluntary trade that people get bring to you. Now, I think this becomes even more clear if you think, you know, not just about books and movies and entertainment, but about some of the major innovations that have completely transformed our lives in recent years. And again, this is another Euron Brook example, but it's another, he uses these examples because these are great examples. So think about the iPhone, okay? So the iPhone is the product that led the smartphone revolution. And the smartphone revolution has completely transformed all kinds of things about the way we live for the better. You know, we carry around a supercomputer in our pocket all day. And it allows us to do things, you know, that were literally science fiction in my lifetime, not that long ago. You know, when I was a kid, the idea of video calling on a handheld device, I mean, this is something from Star Trek, right? This was not something I ever expected to be able to do, you know, in my life. And yet my kids can take it for granted because here it is, right? The sheer number of, of devices and products and services that are packed onto these phones is mind blowing. I mean, you've probably seen these memes where they show you all the different things that are on your phone. So I've got a version of that here, you know, communication to music, to photography, you know, navigation, social connection, productivity tools. You know, we've got all of human knowledge basically available to us at our fingertips. What do I have here? Okay. Now, obviously it's, it's a combination of lots of different products that gives us all those values, right? But the smartphone is the platform that makes it all possible. Now we pay what, a thousand bucks for this thing? I mean, that is nothing compared to, to the value that it brings us, to the, to the transformation that it makes in our life, to be able to walk around and do all the things that we can do on this device. You know, no matter how many billions of dollars Steve Jobs made from the iPhone, that is nothing compared to the value that he brought into the world with this device. 
And you can repeat this kind of example. I mean, if you really think about, about the companies that have revolutionized the way we live, you know, if you think about Amazon and Facebook and Google and Walmart and Microsoft, you know, the list just goes on and on, okay? The reason there are so many billionaires around today is because people have created products that have given us the highest quality of life that human beings have ever experienced on this planet. That's why there are lots of billionaires around. The innovators and the leaders, business leaders responsible for all these products have earned billions because we've all chosen to trade with them so that we can reap the benefits of their innovation. What they deserve from us is our gratitude, not the kind of hatred and demonization that they get from this anti-billionaire demagoguery. Okay. So the first issue is how is it possible that someone, you know, can earn a billion dollars? And I think we've 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 seen how that's possible. But I think there's another aspect of this whole anti-billionaire viewpoint that we need to address and it's the idea that having billions of dollars just gives a person too much power. Okay? This is something that you hear from the anti-billionaire crusaders. You know, they'll claim that they're worried about, you know, great concentrations of wealth and the power that goes along with that. And I think this is an issue that people can find plausible. Even if you accept that a billionaire might have made his money legitimately, doesn't the very possession of that much money just give a person too much power? Now, the reason I wanted to address this issue is because it, it rests on a major confusion that exists in our culture about the concept of power. When people talk about power in this sort of context, they typically gloss over a really important distinction that makes a huge difference in how we think about this issue. And the distinction is one that Ayn Rand identified. It's a distinction between economic power versus political power. When we express a concern about people having too much power, the kind of power that we're worried about is the power to force people to do things against their will, right? It's, it's the power of coercion. But the power of coercion is a power that only the government legally has. So Ayn Rand explains this point in a, in a talk that I'll mention later. She says, no individual or private group or private organization has the legal power to initiate the use of physical force against other individuals or groups and to compel them to act against their own voluntary choice. Only a government holds that power. That's the kind of institution that government is. So this is political power. Now, a proper government is one that uses this political power solely for the purpose of protecting people's individual rights. So it serves a positive role in society. It protects people from coercion by other people, okay? That's a power that only the government legally has and a proper government uses it for a proper purpose. Now this kind of power is completely different from the economic power that someone might acquire by owning billions of dollars. So what is economic power? Well, again, as Rand explains the issue, economic power is the power to produce and trade what one has produced. I'm just gonna read this quote because it's, it's, she explains this very precisely. In a free economy where no man or group of men can use physical coercion against anyone, Economic power can be achieved only by voluntary means, by the voluntary choice and agreement of all those who participate in the process of production and trade. In a free market, all prices, wages, and profits are determined not by the arbitrary whim of the rich or the poor, not by anyone's need or by anyone's greed, but by the law of supply and demand. The mechanism of a free market reflects and sums up all the economic choices and decisions made by all the participants. Men trade their goods or services by mutual consent to mutual advantage, according to their own independent, uncoerced judgment. A man can grow rich only if he's able to offer better values, better products or services at a lower price than others are able to offer. 
So the kind of power that people acquire by earning billions of dollars is the power to engage in win-win transactions with people on the free market. It's not the power to force people to do things against their will. Now, the irony here is that the power of physical force is political power. And this is precisely the kind of power that all the politicians who are attacking the billionaires are seeking to acquire for themselves. No politician today understands that the sole purpose of government is to protect individual rights. They all think that the power of government to coerce people can and should be used for all kinds of purposes, so long as it's in the name of you know, the common good, which they want to have the power to define, right? So while they unleash all kinds of hatred and rage against billionaires for supposedly having too much power, they are actually the ones who are actively seeking to get their hands on political power. The, the, the ugly truth here is that the campaign against billionaires is a rationalization. It's an attempt to blame all the world's problems on the fact that some people have huge amounts of money while others don't. It's an attempt to stir up envy and resentment in order to justify granting even more political power to the very politicians pushing this campaign. Here again, Ayn Rand was, was prophetic and insightful. In a, in a talk that she gave in the early 1960s called America's Persecuted Minority Big Business, she said the following. Whenever in any era, culture, or society you encounter the phenomenon of prejudice, injustice, persecution, and blind, unreasoning hatred directed at some minority group. Look for the gang that has something to gain from that persecution. Look for those who have a vested interest in the destruction of these particular sacrificial victims. Invariably, you will find that the persecuted minority serves as a scapegoat for some movement that does not want the nature of its own goals to be known. Every movement that seeks to enslave a country Every dictatorship or potential dictatorship needs some minority group as a scapegoat, which it can blame for the nation's troubles and use as a justification of its own demands for dictatorial powers. In Soviet Russia, the scapegoat was the bourgeoisie. In Nazi Germany, it was the Jewish people. In America, it's the businessmen. And I would update that by saying today, there, it's, it, there, it's in America, it's billionaires who are being singled out. You know, just look at the language that people use when they call for abolishing billionaires, okay? I mean, you see, you see these kinds of things in headlines and news stories, you know, should billionaires even exist? Every billionaire is a policy failure. You know, billionaires are bad. We should get rid of billionaires. We should get rid of all billionaires. Just imagine that instead of the word billionaire in these slogans, these people were saying Jews or gays or African-Americans. I mean, that would be horrific. You would, you know, just look at these headlines and, and substitute one of those words for it. And you should, you should feel a chill of horror when you think about that. The fact that uh, what we're talking about is billionaires doesn't change the fact that these, that people are being singled out for this kind of demonization uh, and persecution. Bernie Sanders has proposed a national wealth registry in which wealthy people are required to document their assets. Now, when I heard about that, I was horrified because what it reminded me of was that the Nazis did exactly the same thing. Jews in Nazi Germany were required to register all their property and assets. And that was a step on the road towards stealing everything they owned and the horrors of the Holocaust. If that doesn't give you pause on this whole issue, you know, I don't know what else could. So to summarize what we've discussed here, there's this campaign among left-leaning intellectuals and politicians to abolish billionaires. It's, it's actually become an issue in our culture today, whether the very existence of billionaires represents some sort of moral failing of today's society. 
And I, I think this is a travesty. What I've argued is that it, it's the campaign to abolish billionaires itself that's the real moral travesty. When you see a group being singled out and demonized and serving as the scapegoat for all the problems in the world today, you should immediately be suspicious about the motives of the people doing the demonizing. And we should especially be suspicious when the people being attacked in this way are some of the most creative, productive geniuses in the world today. One of the central themes of Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, is people's failure to properly appreciate the productive heroes that are responsible for human progress. So instead of giving fuel and support to this vicious campaign to abolish billionaires, we should be working toward the kind of society where these kinds of people are welcomed and respected and left free to do the productive work that makes all of our lives better. Okay. So that's what I had to say about the issue of abolishing billionaires. Now, if you want to explore Ayn Rand's perspective on these kinds of issues further, um, her novels are a really good place to start. You know, uh, her, her uh, major novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, you know, really explain her whole philosophy. But if you, if you look at her earlier novels, We the Living and Anthem, you see very concretely the kind of society that uh, you get when this sort of scapegoating and demonization of, of a particular group comes into its full fruition. So, you know, it's worth reading all of her novels to see, uh, to see her perspective on this. I also would say if you if you want to understand it in a, in a nonfiction kind of philosophical presentation, um, her books, The Virtue of Selfishness and particularly Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, really develop her perspective on, on political philosophy, capitalism, individual rights. Um, and her talk, America's Persecuted Minority, Big Business, is reprinted in Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. Now, you can also hear it as a lecture. Um, if you download the Ayn Rand University app, um, again, on your smartphone, you can take it with you and listen to it wherever you are in the world. Um, you, can get the, uh, you can get this lecture as one of the offerings on, um, on Ayn Rand University. Okay, so that brings me to the end of my presentation. Um, in just a minute, I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Ben Bayer, who's going to help me moderate the Q&A. And I want to say just a little bit about how the Q&A is going to work. So if you're watching this on Zoom, look for the, look for the Zoom controls and look for a button that says Q&A. And you can post a question there, and we will add it to the queue. Um, I just want to put in a plug for next week. Um, we have, we'll have another webinar next week. Our presenter is Ilan Giorno. The big question he's gonna be discussing is, should you judge other people? So I think that should be an interesting session. It'll be same time, same place next Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific time. So be sure to join us then. If you have a big question you'd like us to answer, um, you know, let us know. We're interested in hearing what kinds of life questions you have. Send them to webinars at einrand.org. And as we do every week in this poll, in this uh, in this series, you know, we're trying to um, we're trying to. Our goal for this series is to introduce Ayn Rand's to ideas to people who aren't already familiar with them. So we're curious to know if we're reaching our target audience. And so what we do is we every week we poll the audience to see what their familiarity is with Ayn Rand. So I'm going to launch the poll. I'm just going to put it up here. And if you're attending live on Zoom, please vote on the poll and let us know um, what your familiarity is with Ayn Rand. Okay. So, um, so that brings me to the Q&A. So let me turn off my PowerPoint and stop my, I should stop my screen share. Is that right? That's what I need to there do. There you now. go. Yeah. It's the, it's the screen share, not the presentation. Okay. Hi, Ben. Thanks for joining. I like the Harry Potter pictures. <laughs> <laughs> but I should just mention, Keith, that um, since it's the day before Thanksgiving, uh, ARI actually just released, our colleague Paul Task just released an article 
uh, on Thanksgiving Celebrate Production. It sounds many of the same kinds of themes uh, that uh, I think you did and uh, includes some passages from Atlas Shrugged speaking precisely to the issue that you raised about how uh, producers contribute more to the world than they get back. I'll, I'll put the link to that in the in the chat for anyone who's interested. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much more that one could say about that issue. Um, I, I think I just sort of scratched the surface of it here. And this was a major theme of Ayn Rand's writing throughout her career. Um, you know, the, the injustice that our society perpetrates towards the people who, who actually contribute the most towards improving human life and making all of our lives better. So, yeah. So we've, uh, we've already gotten a few questions that I think are good to start our discussion with. Okay. And they both uh, speak to this, uh, this issue that you raised about concentration of power. And one of the reasons people object to billionaires is because they think there's this concentration of power. And so Sam asked a question uh, regarding economic and political power. I know they are conflated conceptually, as, as you explained. Uh, but aren't they conflated actually too? It seems that a lot of money can buy or otherwise influence a lot of political power, i.e. coercion. So he's saying, I, I guess, if you get a lot of economic power of the kind you're saying is okay, doesn't that still give you political power if you're able to uh, pay off politicians to do your dirty work or whatever? Yeah, I mean, so that's absolutely true in the society we have today, because we live in what, what you would call a mixed economy, we don't have a, a perfectly laissez-faire capitalist society where you have uh, an unregulated, totally laissez-faire free market and, and government is restricted to its proper purpose of solely of protecting individual rights. So we have a huge problem today you know, that people, it goes by the name of cronyism, right? That you, 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 um, the, the same, the, 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 the people's, I, I said in the presentation that no politician today thinks that government should be restricted solely to the purpose of individual rights. They all think that you should be able to use the power of government force for the purpose of uh, enacting some version of the common good. And that's given rise to this whole special interest industry of people lobbying politicians for this privilege or this favor or this handout, the whole phenomenon of cronyism exists because of, of, of the, the, the political system has been corrupted from its original founding purpose. But the, so the question is, what is the, what is the source of the corruption? And people immediately point the finger at at billionaires and say, well, it's the money that's corrupting politics. But the truth is, it's the other way around. It's the fact that we don't have a proper conception of, of um, the proper role of government and that people think that it's legitimate to use government force to secure special privileges or handouts or bailouts or, you know, just uh, uh, whatever goal you're trying to accomplish always in the name of the public good, of course, but, you know, then, uh, you know, people will, will try to serve their interests as well doing that. That's the source of the problem. And so the solution is not in some um, compounding the problem with more regulations or campaign finance laws or something like that. The solution is to recognize the proper role of government and work to restrict it to its proper purpose so that we can separate political power from economic power. Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand argued that there should be a complete separation of state and economics. And she said, for the same reason and for the same purposes, we have separation of, of state and church. So. So Steve asks a question that's, a, I think, a good follow-up uh, to Sam's. Uh, the difference between political and economic power seems clear. Why do those like Sanders seem not to understand it? Uh, can we judge their motives if it is not an honest mistake? And I was actually also going to ask you about uh, why not just uh, why say this is a moral travesty? Why why actually why not just say they're mistaken so that there's some connection there too? I mean, there's I mean, there's there's so much historical evidence about what happens when government tries to assume the kinds of role that it. I mean, I mean. We, we, 
people are people are advocating socialism. Politicians like Sanders are advocating socialism. They're advocating the, the kinds of policies that we've seen enacted around the world for decades that have led to, you know, complete disaster, collapse, and mass slaughter. I don't think I don't think that that can be an honest error. I think someone like Sanders, you know, knows what he's advocating and is after political power and you know he should be judged accordingly i don't uh, i mean maybe you have you have maybe you can add to this answer if you have thoughts on what you would say but um but i mean one thing that occurs to me is that whether it's a honest mistake or a dishonest mistake one reason that people conflate these two kinds of power is the same reason that they conflate uh I mean, the difference between the two of them is closely related to the difference between reason and force, right? So uh, the power to produce is the power to persuade someone voluntarily to purchase a product, whereas uh, power to destroy is the opposite. It's, it's the power to use coercion. And so you can think about this, I think, by asking, well, why would people run those two things together, reason and force? Why wouldn't they see a difference between the two of them? And the only answer I can come up with to that question is that they don't see uh, the role of the free individual mind as efficacious. Uh, it, because of course you have to first use your mind to create a, a, a product of value and then try to appeal to the minds of others. So if you don't believe in free will, if you don't think that, if you think everybody's just a product of their environment, their genetics, uh, then, you know, the fact that someone sticks a product in front of your face is just as much of a stimulus as sticking a gun in front of your face. Uh, and so if you don't understand the, different, the difference between uh, a freely willed choice and something that's determined physically, that could lead to the confusion. And that is a philosophic idea that influences Marxists, among others, uh, the idea that there is no difference between those two, this determinism. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, mean, but, I mean, I think more broadly... A, a, one way to put it is that the whole thrust of philosophy over the last couple centuries has been pushing us in the direction of the sort of the way you could put it is the statist, or the way Ayn Rand puts it is a, is a mystical statist, altruist, collectivist perspective. And, uh, you know, and the culture has followed suit. Of course, there's then the question of are uh, determinism and collectivism themselves things that you could be honestly confused about? And uh, well, that uh, th there we could give a webinar on that in the future, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get us a little far. Um, so, well, actually, here's a question that relates to this prior discussion. Um, Pooja asks, a colleague of mine was lamenting all the marketing that is out there, which makes kids demand stuff from him and hard for him to refuse them or control his own impulses to spend money and live within his means. His conclusion, the billionaires control my life. Any tips for him? So right there, you see there is this kind of deterministic perspective that uh, informs the conflation of these two kinds of power. Uh, but uh, so both as, a, a, as an intellectual and as a parent, maybe you have thoughts on whether or not these billionaires are con controlling your kids about, uh, you know, making them, making you buy Harry Potter stuff. Look, marketing is a form of education, right? It, it, it lets us know what's out there in the world. Anybody who thinks that they're controlled by marketing, I think is not, I either is not sufficiently self-disciplined or is, 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 has a failure of introspection. You have, you have the freedom to decide what you're going to spend money on, what you're not. And, you know, as a parent, you have to, part of your job is to help teach your children uh, lessons about prioritization and, and what are you going to spend your money on? Do you want to blow it all on this thing or, or not? I mean, um, I think you could probably speak more to the, to the whole determinism side of this issue, but it's just not true that that the fact that marketing exists and you know and the fact that we're even if even if we're inundated by it we have a basic control over the choices that we make about the functioning of our mind and about and about and 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 that gives rise to a basic choice about 
how we guide our lives. So <laughs> you're smiling. I mean, I don't, I don't think I need too much philosophic expertise to remember my experience growing up, which was that I wanted all kinds of stuff that I saw advertised and I asked my parents for it. And they said no. <laughs> so, and then after a while, I didn't want it anymore. So this was a, a pretty obvious kind of experience. Um, I mean, look, they, I, I, you know, obviously my kids want all kinds of things. And one, one solution is for bigger ticket items. Like my daughter at one point wanted an iPad. And we said, yeah, fine. Um, you can save up for it and you can buy it. And she saved up. She, she you know, um, did jobs and things like that and uh, and she actually um, she actually went online and did all the research to find the on a Black Friday sale so she could buy it for less I mean it was a great lesson for her um, on the value of these things and what it takes to actually you know what it takes to actually earn them how hard you have to work to get enough money to buy one of those products that kind of perspective um, is what you need if you're going to be able to prioritize given all the marketing and that sort of thing that you're inundated with. So, I mean, for, as a parent, there's all kinds of lessons that you can teach your kids in this context. So shifting from uh, the perspective of the consumers who, uh, who consume things that these billionaires produce to the perspective of the producers themselves, um, I have two questions for you about what it means for them to earn or to deserve their fortune. Um, first, thinking about someone like J.K. Rowling, what would you say to somebody who, who said, well, it's all very well and good that she's created this product and benefited so many people, uh, but that doesn't really mean that she earned her billions because after all, didn't she have the help of her parents and her educators? And I think JK Rowling was even on British welfare for a while while she was writing those books. So shouldn't we make her give back for what she's taken from society? Uh, and maybe this doesn't mean she doesn't deserve to be a billion. We, we, maybe this doesn't mean we should take away all of her money, but uh, maybe a, a lot of it, they would say. Yeah, I mean, people bring up the fact that we drive on public roads and we go to public schools and, you know, society, you know, the Hillary Clinton's village takes a village to, to raise a child and so on. Well, so part of the problem in addressing that issue is that we don't have a choice. So in our society, we, we have to pay our taxes to pay for the public schools and roads and utilities and various services, you know, all, all these, all these uh, functions that have been taken over by the government, which is not the way it should be. So, you know, you, in, a, in, a, in a laissez-faire society, all these things would be privatized. But the point is these are, so these are services, education, you know, even roads, um, healthcare, all these things are services that have to be produced by people's effort. And those people are paid for the services that they provide, right? So if I pay to send my child to a school, um, and that school and that child gets a good education, what do they what do they have to give back? I've paid I've paid for it. It's a it's a it's a it's a free trade on a free market. It's a win win exchange. The teachers, you know, has has gotten paid for the work that that he or she has done, and my child has gotten the value of the education. What is there to give back? So now when we have a situation where, where people are forced to do this through taxation, I mean, we don't have a choice about that. And, and you could ask the question of whether, like people say, well, I, I benefited from going to the public schools, so therefore I want to give back. Well, maybe if we had a, had a private system of education um, and you had, comp, you had competition and you had private, you know, maybe the education you would have gotten would have been so much better and you'd be so much better off in life. We can't know what it would be like because we're in a situation where we don't have a choice about this. Um, I don't know, does that answer? Uh, I think that's a, a definitely a big part of it. I would add to it that there's this view that I think is often implicit in that kind of question, that the only way you could ever earn anything is if you created it ex nihilo, out of nothing, like a god. Uh, and I think that's just a, a 
mistaken and fantastic way of thinking about what it means to deserve or to earn something. What what it means to deserve or earn something is is to take what you're given in life and do something with it. And there's a difference between the people who do that and the people who don't. And the people who uh, start with something and, and sit around and do nothing don't deserve any rewards. The people who take what they're given and make something of themselves, like J.K. Rowling did, that's what we mean to to deserve something. There's no such thing as creating things out of nothing. And that would be a ridiculous way to set up the standard for that idea. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the paradigm case of that is Isaac Newton, who said, you know, who, who you know, contributed, you know, an unprecedented amount of to human knowledge. And he said, the only reason I could see so far is because I was standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, I mean, he didn't come out of nowhere. He had to rely on the work that people had done before him. But to say that he that that fact makes his contribution um, uh, irrelevant is is crazy. And he was probably uh, selling himself a bit short since that was the <laughs> only reason that he saw as far as he did. He also <laughs> invented calculus, that helped. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a related question to that about also about uh, dessert is okay. So suppose somebody grants that the, that J.K. Rowling or her equivalent can deserve her billions. Even still, why if suppose she has kids and decides to give her fortune to her to her uh, to her heirs, why do the children have the right to keep it? And one common accusation against wealth inequality is that it gets accumulated by families over the years, uh, even when the kids didn't do anything to deserve the money. So why should they get to keep it even if their parents should be able to keep it? Yeah. So, so if you accept the idea that uh, it's possible you know, to earn and therefore deserve the money that you make through voluntary exchange on a free market, and you accept the idea that we have that that property rights should exist. We have a right to the property that we've earned. Then you have to accept the fact that the the property rights include not just the right to own something, but the rights to use and dispose and and to to determine what happens to your property after you die. So it's not it's not so much it, 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 i mean it's the, the heirs have the right to the money that they've acquired by inheritance but the but the morality of it the justice of it really it comes down to the right of the person who earned the money to do with it what they want after they die um the fact that you know alice walton has 50 billion dollars I, I think there's another there's another um aspect to this that i think leads people to this kind of question and leads to a certain confusion on this. The fact that Alice Walton has $50 billion that she got from her father, you know, doesn't take anything away from anybody else. We have this perspective that the wealth that exists in society is like this fixed pie. And you'll see people saying that if, you know, the 1% have this, we're all fighting for this tiny little wedge. The fact is that it's, it's the, it's the, the geniuses who make these vast fortunes, the Sam Waltons, the Steve Jobs, you know, um, they are the ones who create the pies. The only reason the pies exist in the first place is because of the, of the incredible productive achievements that these people have created. That's why there are pies in the first place. And, it, you know, to stretch the analogy a little bit. So it's, so the fact that Sam Walton bakes this incredibly huge pie and leaves it to his kids doesn't take any pie away from me, okay? Um, and the fact that we live in the kind of society where people are free to create such vast fortunes is, is the kind of society that makes it possible for everybody to flourish and for everybody to get ahead. Ayn Rand was once asked a question about inheritance in a Q&A and she, the way she put it is that the number of large fortunes that are produced and transmitted to heirs is a measure of the country's freedom. So her attitude basically was, you know, the more large fortunes and worthless heirs, the better. Like, bring it on. Let's have, let's have worthless heirs. The other thing I would say is, um, is you know, th there used to be this expression 
that, you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, meaning, you know, one person would start out poor and then they would make lots of money. And by the second generation, they'd make a big fortune. Then they'd leave it to some worthless heir and buy, and they would, they would blow all the money and, and, and it would go away. So the, 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 uh, you know, the, the, um, if, if an heir isn't, uh, isn't productive with the money that they've got, it's going to be a static fortune and it's not going to have be, be a major factor in, in driving the economy or driving production forward or driving progress forward. So it doesn't take away from anybody else. And it, 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 um, you know, it's not, it's not going to have a, a major impact on anything else. So I don't think there's a, there's a problem with inheritance. Yeah, I would add that the issue here isn't, I mean, the, I take it that you're not saying that every heir who gets money from their parents is a worthwhile person and, and, and does good things with the money. Um, there are surely examples of worthless heirs. Um, and so the... And as a parent, I'm sure it's it's a consideration. Like, is this does my child have the character uh, necessary to manage this money well? And the the issue is that that should be their choice. They should be free to make that judgment. Now they might well decide, no, this person is going to be a worthless heir, and so I'm not going to spoil them and ruin their life with this fortune, uh, which is what it would do uh, when they go to back to shirt sleeves. Um, but uh, they need to be the ones who are free to do that. So the, the issue isn't, oh no, what happens if some worthless heir gets money? The issue is we need to re respect the parents' rights to give money, in, especially because there are non-worthless heirs out there and who, you know, who are actually going to triple the production of uh, the company if they take over. There are many examples of uh, people who inherit the family business and it's been you know, kind of plodding along under their parents' hands, but then they make it take off. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's that's made possible by capital accumulation, which they might not have been able to acquire on their own in the first place. But look what then again what they're able to do with what they've been given. Uh, well, you know that that raises another issue, which uh, it hasn't come up, but it's the other thing that people will say is nobody needs a billion dollars, right? But that depends on what your goals are. Right? right. If you're Jeff Bezos and your goal is like space travel, I mean, maybe a hundred billion dollars isn't even enough. Maybe he needs to get to a trillion dollars in order to achieve the things that he wants to achieve in, in, in terms of, you know, creating the infrastructure for regular travel into space. I mean, it's, it's, you can't, you can't say, uh, you, you can't make a judgment like that because it's an issue of, of a person's uh, goals and priorities. Okay, so another question uh, that came in from Pooja, I think is also a good one here. Uh, she says, whenever I try to explain the pyramid of ability, now we haven't defined what that is yet, but it's, okay. it's the uh, Ayn Rand's, it's the notion that you've been working with that, uh, that uh, the, the greatest producers give more to society than they receive back in you know, monetary terms. Whenever I try to explain the pyramid of ability, uh, in society to a colleague, the pushback I get is that it is elitist thinking. On the flip side, I am told we don't owe anything to the billionaires since we trade with them. Thoughts on how to clarify these issues? Well, in a way, the we don't owe them anything beyond what we pay them is true. It's just like saying that we don't owe the teacher anything because we paid her salary, right? Um, but when I think when Ayn Rand talks about owing them what they're talking what she's talking about is 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 what we owe them morally we owe them and what we owe them spiritually uh you know we're in a situation where the people who contribute most to the advancement of human progress and human flourishing you know are are scorned and vilified and hated and made the target of this kind of campaign and and uh and it's and it's the injustice of that that she's she's arguing against um, now, as far as the, so the, the pyramid of ability is the idea that, that um, somebody who creates a huge, so, well, uh, uh, 
the 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 kinds of innovations that um, result from like new inventions, new machinery, new technology, that sort of thing, um, makes people more productive. So the Ayn Rand gives the example of a of of, of um, you know, someone who, who runs a factory and who invents a new machine that makes all the workers more productive. So the, the, the physical labor that the workers engage in, okay, um, contributes a certain amount to the product that gets created. But the productivity of their labor is vastly increased by this new machine. And so that's the idea that the, that the inventor of the new machine, you know, contributes way more than the than the than um, you know the sum of all the all the value of the, of the workers contributed. That's not super clear, but you know I I, I think if if the charge is that it's an elitist perspective, then I think um, I think maybe the 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 goal would be to try to find a way to explain it more clearly so that it's it's clear. Uh, what you're actually defending, or you're not saying that people that people at the top of the pyramid should be paid more. You're saying they, they should be paid what what their what the free market is is commanding, but it's it's the gratitude for the innovations that uh, that we're talking about. <laughs> I yeah, I would I would also say that I think the the concept of elitism is at the very least a poorly defined concept and I would bet involves some kind of conceptual distortion. If, if what elitism is, is the recognition that there are such people as elite people who have superior uh, intelligence and productive ability, if that's what it means, uh, then what's wrong with elitism? I mean, it's, it's a fact of reality that there are people who have greater ability and people who make better choices with the ability that they're given. And why shouldn't uh, you first of all recognize that fact, but then especially if you're the benefactor of their greater ability, why shouldn't you recognize that and, and, and be grateful for it? Uh, and part of what Rand suggests when she talks about this pyramid of ability idea, and by the way, if people are wondering about it, there's passages from this, about this idea in that article from Paul Task that I posted. Part of what she's saying is that it's actually impossible to repay them for what they've given us because you can pay the money. Uh, and of course, the money that you give them is not, uh, you know, is worth less to you than the benefit you received and vice versa for them. Uh, and you can't repay them with intellectual contributions of the kind that they had to put in in order to create the product that they're selling you. And so uh, in a way you can't repay them. So at the very least, what you can, uh, what you can do is, ex is express some gratitude. And the way that it comes out in the passages that are quoted in, in the speech and out the shrugged is the, the main thing they're asking for is freedom. The main thing they're asking for is, is the freedom to continue to create which is, of course, exactly what uh, Sanders and uh, Casey Cortez and others want to take away. Yep. <clears throat> so let's see here. Uh, running a little short on mm -hmm. questions. Seven we minutes. only have about seven minutes left. Uh, but how about we go with Steve's question? Um, and the way he puts it is, if current trends continue, would you ever think that Atlas would shrug? Now, this is a question that presupposes a little bit of familiarity uh, with the novel Atlas Shrugged, but I take it the reason he's asking the question is because, well, you're suggesting that the, the great producers uh, first not only should not be abolished, but deserve some gratitude for what they've done. And yet, here we are in the society that is actually pushing to abolish them, which is the opposite of the way they should be treated. And so, I mean, what do you think? How long will they continue to produce as they produce when, when this is what they have to deal with? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't know that I can make a prediction about that sort of thing. But, you know, I think the what 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 this looks like, you know, in the real world is 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 a is a. I mean, we, we don't have to we don't have to imagine it because you see it in places like Venezuela. You see it in countries where where people have adopted the kinds of policies, the kind of soak the rich policies that people are at that have been advocated, and you see the gradual spiral into destruction and and devastation that happens in these countries. Um, so. You know, I, I it, it's you 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 can you can you can see how these kinds of things progress just by looking at history. What happened in in Nazi Germany? What happened in the Soviet Union? What's happened in all the places around the world where where socialism has been put into practice? Um, you know, the uh, one of the I didn't say this in the presentation, but another thing that kind of gave me chills was part of Bernie Sanders. Uh, wealth tax proposal. He wants a national wealth registry, but he also, you know, he recognizes that if this sort of thing gets put into practice, people might try to leave the country. And he wants to impose exit taxes, which was another thing that was part of this Nazi era uh, laws. Not only did Jews have to register their wealth, but if they did, if they tried to leave, there were massive exit taxes, 50%, 60% exit taxes on their wealth trying to leave the country. And it's basically, it's like, I mean, and then the next thing you have is the Berlin Wall and guards shooting people trying to flee. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying. Somebody's already building a wall for opposite reasons, but it's very <laughs> easy to transform it yeah. to work the other way. Well, that's true. Um, uh, Nicolette asks a question. I think we can make, make, this, make this the last one. Would you call this an age of envy? I take it she's referencing the essay by Ayn Rand, which was called The Age of Envy. I mean, I, I think that that uh, the emotion of envy is something that the anti-billionaire crowd are trying to stir up and trying to cash in on and trying to activate in order to uh, in order to um, you know you, with any of this kind of scapegoating, people have to take a, a group and 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 dehumanize them, not be able to see them as individual people, but just as this group. You know this is what you know like it, when the Soviets singled out the bourgeoisie, you know they they, they weren't they they weren't talking about people, they were talking about these elite classes, and then it's easier for people to, to um, go after them. And I think uh, envy is an emotion that, that fuels that kind of phenomenon. Um, so, you know, I don't know, I don't know whether it's an age of envy, but um, I mean, Ayn Rand has an article called The Age of Envy, where she talks about the phenomenon of envy, and she talks about, um, a particular variant, a particularly ugly variant of it, which is is its resentment of people for their success. She called it hatred of the good for being the good. Um, you know, so you, so uh, you can you can follow up by exploring what she talks about in that article. Yeah, and I think I think you've got to be. I mean, I think they've got to be appealing to envy, and I think they've got to be, in many cases, motivated by it themselves. And part of the evidence for that is that if you truly soaked all the rich in the way that they wanted to, and 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 just confiscated their fortunes outright, it it would pay for you know a few years of social of the kinds of social programs uh, that they want to establish. So. Uh, it's it, if, if those programs get established, they're going to have to be funded by the, the the bulk of the population. So singling out these uh, these achievers and producers and billionaires, it's motivated by something else. It's not motivated by oh, we can use their stuff to make new great things. Uh, it's it's motivated by uh, as you say, a, a desire to scapegoat, and uh, that's because there's a people get a perverse kind of pleasure in seeing somebody torn down, even when they aren't going to get 
anything from it of substance in return. Uh, and of course, it can't be uh, anything of substance in return because as we've already discussed, these people are already giving us great things. And if we, if we, if we soak them or abolish them, they'll stop. That's when we'll lose the benefits. Yeah. All right. Let's see. I'm going to share my screen again with, and we can draw a line there. And uh, so again, same bat time, same bat channel next week. Elon Giorno, should you judge other people? Um, if you sign up, uh, if you register, then you'll get notifications and reminders and all that good stuff. And send us your big questions. Uh, we're going to keep doing this series for the foreseeable future. So, you know, we welcome uh, questions from people. And uh, that's it for today. So thanks for joining me, Ben. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.